Our scripture reading this morning is Daniel chapter 8, verses 15 through 27. It's located in your church Bibles on page 746. Please stand if you are able as we read from the Old Testament. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Please be seated. Let's pray as we come to this text today. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of you and is profitable to us. So that we uh, pray today as we come to this uh, unique text uh, that you would keep your promises to us. And we know that you are a God that does so. So we come expectantly uh, knowing that you will speak to us, so we pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds to what you have for us from this text, that we might be challenged and encouraged by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> I went to a liberal arts Christian college, and this college was uh, very big into the fine arts in fact, every, at the end of every fall season, there would be a, a large Shakespearean play that they would put on for several days. The community would come. All of the students were required to attend these as well. And then in the springtime, they would put on an opera. And they would fly, uh, for the main characters, they would fly people in from New York and all around the world to be the main singers. And then those in the Fine Arts Academy would uh, take part in those operas as well. Now, I had watched these plays and operas throughout my years there, and I had organized, actually, my 
uh, classes uh, to be loaded up the first several years so that hopefully my last semester at college would give me a little bit more freedom to do some things that maybe I hadn't had the opportunity to do. And I thought, why not? It's my senior year, the second semester, I'll try out for the opera. And I found myself as a tumbler for the Queen's entertainment in the opera Aida. And I had always watched these plays and operas, and you know that there's a lot going on behind the curtain, right? But I really had no idea how much was actually going on behind the curtain until I was a part of that opera. And as we come to this text today, there's something that we're going to see over and over again, and it's this fact that there is something bigger going on behind the curtain. There's something bigger going on behind the curtain. And as we've looked at Daniel 1 through 6, we see Daniel 1 through 6 is kind of like a narrative, <clears throat> mostly stories about what has taken place and what Daniel has done. And then it shifts a little bit as we come to chapters 7 to 12, and it gives us a picture of what was going on behind the curtain of those first few chapters. <clears throat> it gives us a, the divine perspective of the history that has taken place. We see that at the beginning of this chapter here, chapter 8, if you open up your Bibles to it, that this vision that Daniel got, he got it during the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. And that was the story that we saw in chapter 5, where Kirk came and talked to us about that handwriting on the wall. But as we work our way through this chapter today, we're going to see that uh, first we're going to look at the vision, the interpretation, and the fulfillment. And I'm going to try to do all of those in one point, even though they could all be a sermon in and of themselves. Um, but secondly, we're going to look at the implications for Daniel, for Israel, and for all of the generations of God's people. We're going to see that there's always something bigger going on behind the curtain. So let's look first at the vision, the interpretation, and the fulfillment. Now, before we dive into this point, I know that not everyone is a history buff, and I do realize that this is a worship service and not a history class. However, if we are going to fully understand this passage and what's going on, and in turn understand what God has to say to us through this text, we have to look at these historical details. Now, I've tried my best not to toss us into the deep end of the pool so as to drown us, but I promise if you hang with me, it'll come together. So just hang tight. But let's look first at a ram with two horns. And we see this in verses 3 to 4 and in 15 to 20. And we see this vision. Look down at verses 3 to 4. Look at the words there. And in this vision, we see that there's a ram that has high horns. One is higher than the other. And it charges in every other direction besides east, and that is because it's coming from the east, from that direction. Now, nothing could stand up to this ram, and it became a very great power. Now, what is the interpretation of this? Now, what I like about this text and about uh, reading biblical prophetic literature is when it says, this is what it means then we don't have to guess, right? So in the second half of this text, it tells us this is what it means. So look down at verses 15 to 20, particularly verse 20. What is this ram? Verse 20, as for the ram you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. Whew. Okay, we know what it means. 
But what is this fulfillment? Okay, so here in Daniel chapter 8, we see that this is the third time that the Medo-Persian Empire has been referenced with Persia growing stronger than the Medes, the larger horn, and it's prophesied. And there's no real prophecy here of Babylon except for the lack of it because this uh, empire gets taken out. So we see the rise of this second empire, the rise of the Medes and the Persians, And the first thing we actually need to recognize is that this vision is a vision of good news because it is about the ending of a time of wrath. And we see it referenced as such as like the appointed time of the end. Now, unfortunately, when we read that and when a lot of people read that, we immediately think and there's an assumption that this is talking about the end of the world. It's talking about the last days, or it's talking about the second coming of Christ. But that phrase, the end, is a general expression that references the existing horizon of the immediate context at hand. So if we force Daniel 8, if we force this chapter to be talking about something that is in the future for us now, then we're really missing the main event that is being predicted here, which is actually history for us now. Further, when we do that, we're actually adding more confusion to the study of Christ's second coming. So this text is letting us know about a terrible time to come for the Jewish people. He's warning them about this day, but he's also reminding them and encouraging them that there would be an end to this time of anger. It would end. But it starts here with the Medes and the Persians. So then secondly, we have a goat with a striking horn in verses 5 and 8 and then 21 to 22. We see the vision in verses 5 to 8. There's this fast male goat. And it's so fast it gets across the whole earth without its feet even touching the ground. And this is a parallel between chapters 2, 7, and 8 that we see. Remember in chapter 7 we saw this referenced as a, a fast leopard. Okay, so this male goat comes in and strikes the ram. Remember, that's the Medes and the Persians. And it breaks its horns. So the male goat, in turn, then becomes great. And there's a powerful horn on this male goat that breaks and then becomes four horns. What? I mean, seriously, if if you're still awake, you're probably wondering what in the world is going on here. But again, thankfully, we have the interpretation in verses 21 and 22. The goat is, class, the king of Greece, right here. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Look at verse 22. As for the horn that was broken in the place of those other four horns, one arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. Now the fulfillment, we have this ram. We have this empire of the Medes and Persians with the Persians becoming stronger than the Medes. Then we have a male goat that comes along and takes out this empire. We're told that that male goat is Greece and the large horn is its first major king who is Alexander the Great, as someone said. The first major king of Greece. Now this is not to be confused with Alexander the Grape, which was my favorite candy growing up. Um, but do you, do you remember Alexander the Great from school? He rose to power at about 21 years of age. 
And at the Granicus River, Alexander brought an army of 35,000 foot soldiers to fight against the Medes and the Persians. Their army was about 100,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 horsemen. Now this battle only lasted for about an hour, and it says that Alexander, the winner, only lost approximately 100 soldiers in that battle. Now he then went on to conquer the world from Italy to India by the age of 26. And it's said that he cried when he got to the end because there were no more things to conquer. Now, oddly enough, Alexander dies of typhoid fever by the age of 33, and his kingdom is divided up into four areas led by his four generals, the four horns from our text. Now, Daniel is given this prophetic vision over 200 years before Alexander would rise to power. And this vision and interpretation that's given by Gabriel are thoroughly supported by what happened in the future for Daniel, but is now history for us. The human mind couldn't have just thought this up or predicted these things. In fact, these prophecies are so accurate that scholars that do not believe in the inerrant word of God say that Daniel must have been written just before Christ. So it is written as telling history rather than a prediction. But we know that that is not the case because we have a God above all history who has brought these things to Daniel. But we see a little horn that arises from these four horns. And much more attention is given to this little horn for some reason. And we'll see why. Because it's a, a king with a bold face. Verses 9 to 14 and I just want to read this whole section because it'll draw out a little bit of focus for us. Look at verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as the great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act, and it will prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one say to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? And the giving over the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. That is the vision. <clears throat> what is the interpretation? Look down at verse 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken. 
but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Okay, so what is the fulfillment of this? Greece came to power around 330 uh, 330 BC and stayed in power until Rome replaced Greece around 146 BC. But just as we see in this prophecy, an interesting character comes to power around 175 BC until 164 BC. And his name is Antiochus IV. Now, just as Daniel says, this little horn would come to reign at the end of the reign of these four kings. That's about 150 years after Alexander's death until Antiochus. And just as Daniel predicted, this little horn started small and slowly grew to power. In fact, Antiochus had royal blood, but because of the birth order, there was no way that he could be king However, because of his intrigue, because of his deceit, because of his ability to understand and create riddles, he found himself getting rid of his nephew to gain the throne. Now we know from history that Antiochus set himself up to be God in the text we have in the place of the prince of princes. He wanted to be called God and in fact had inscribed on the money Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the manifest God. His face was set, as we see in the text, towards the glorious land, Palestine, that is the place of God's people. He threw truth to the ground by burning the scrolls of the Torah. He was very successful in what he did. In fact, he sent some soldiers to Jerusalem to befriend the Jews. And when he was successful at them becoming friends together, the soldiers took control of Jerusalem and the temple, and he destroyed, he came in and destroyed God's people in unimaginable ways, killing somewhere of like uh, 40,000 people. Around that same time, he put up a statue of the god of either Juniper or Zeus, in front of the sacred altar in the temple, that altar where people made sacrifices, and he came in and he made the people make sacrifices using pigs, which are unclean animals to Jews. And these sacrifices were made to worship this God. He put a stop to the regular services and worship, and the temple doors were closed, and worship was prohibited by death until 167 B.C., But quickly note that word or that number, 2,300 days and evenings. Now, it could be taken a couple of ways. First, you could take it as a literal 2,300 days, which would equal a little over six years. Or it could reference the morning-evening sacrifices of praise that come from the Old Covenant, which would cut that number in half, making it a little over three years. But check this out. It was a little over six years from the time Antiochus took Jerusalem to the time of his death. And a little over three years from the time he puts the statue of the God in place of the Holy of Holies to the time when he dies. By the way, it was a very mysterious death. 
where a stink was coming from the inside of him that he could not explain, and he himself referenced it as an act of God. Are these numbers coincidence? No way. So let's move quickly to point number two, the implications for Daniel, Israel, and God's people throughout all generations. What are the implications for us then? First, God is at work in everything. Now, I won't repeat everything that Steve said last week in regard to God's sovereignty, that is God's control over all of history, but I just want us to remember that fact. If any detail hangs in the balance, then it all does. So God is in complete control, and it's interesting really how it plays out in this story. God would use Alexander and what he did in combination with the Roman road system to spread the gospel around the ancient world. Check this out. What do you need for the gospel to spread? You need proper transportation and you need a common language. Before Alexander, there were uh, several different dialects. So people could communicate, but not as easily. But then Alexander comes along and he mandates the learning of essentially a created language, which is Koine Greek. It's the common Greek. So everybody had to learn it and everybody had to speak it and all of the empire could speak it. The Romans come along and they have created this road system where all of the roads are connected. And you've heard that phrase, all the roads lead to Rome. So you could make your way to Rome finding any road. Now it would be through these two acts in history that the means of the gospel would spread throughout the entire ancient world. You see, God uses even evil leaders to accomplish his purposes. And they, in their time, as they have in the past, and they will all come to a point of judgment. Now, is there any current application for us and what's going on in our world now? How about for us as individuals? The job that you just lost, the diagnosis of cancer, that disappointment, the loss of a family member suddenly. Scripture tells us that we know that God is working all things together for good. For our good and for his glory. Why? Because he's at work in everything. There's an older band called Cademan's Call that I love, and they had a song. And listen to these lyrics. I had to walk the rocks to see the mountain view, but looking back, I see the lead of love. God's at work in everything. But secondly, I want us to look at this uh, character, Gabriel. This is an angel that we know throughout Scripture has run many errands for God. We see him a handful of times, and uh, these errands that he runs are to make great announcements. And here in Daniel chapter 8, he comes in to tell of coming destruction. And then later in Daniel, and then in Luke chapter 1, we see him coming to tell about a coming salvation. Daniel 8, it's referenced, and he uses the phrase horn of destruction, and that horn will be destroyed. 
In Luke 1, he's referenced as, he uses the phrase, horn of salvation that will never be destroyed. You see, while we're here on this side of the person and work of Jesus Christ, there's so much more to our disposal and evidence that God is, in fact, who he says he is and that he loves you more than you could ever have imagined. Because Jesus came and lived life for us, the perfect life. Then he was punished and killed on that cross for our sin and raised to life again and will return one day for his people where all of the wrongs will be made right, where the people of God will feast in the house of Zion and we will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. This is who God is. And all of these flow from Christ the center, literally the center of our history. So God is at work in everything. There's something for us to learn there from Gabriel that's pointing us to Jesus. But then flowing out of that, the next implication is for us to suit up. Now, when you go to a wedding or when you have a job interview, you dress for the occasion. And it's easy for us to forget that even though that God is at work in everything, for this time, he has allowed the evil one to prowl around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And we forget that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, as Ephesians 6 says. We forget that there are, in fact, evil forces at work as well behind the curtain. So Ephesians 6 reminds us to suit up for the occasion. Verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all your circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints." What is the only offensive weapon given there in that list? The sword of the spirit, which is my opinion in my soapboxes, right? No. It's the word of God. Why? Because that is the only thing that is alive. That is the only thing that is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. So that leads us finally to then how do we interact in the world? Remember, the beginning of this text reminds us, if you look at it, that this vision took place before the events of chapter 5, when Daniel had to go in before the king and say, hey, king, just wanted to let you know that uh, tonight's your last night. Your kingdom's going to fall tonight. Now, do you think that took courage? Do you think that took boldness? Do you think that took any kind of... uh, Suave, okay, 
check this out. The only way that Daniel could do this is because he knew beforehand how the story would end. God had given him a glimpse behind the curtain. So he is able then with his life to be impacted because he's had this glimpse. He knows that there is more going on behind the curtain. So what does it have to do for us, for Daniel and for the Israelites? It calls us first to humility. This is how we interact in the world, with humility. In 1971, Carly Simon released that popular song, You're So Vain, You Probably Think This Song Is About You. You know, you guys are going to get that stuck in your head now. Now, I can't help but think about that for us as humans when it comes to God's redemptive story and how we interact with the world. We're so vain, we probably think this story is about us. And while we are a part of the redemptive story, while we are a focus and while we are a part of God's plan, of course, this story is not primarily about us. It's about God's glory through the redemption of his people and all of creation. And when we grasp that, we recognize that our agendas, our goals, when we bring them under that, we think that God should be doing things in this world that we want. But it is not about us. It is not about our plan. It's about what he is doing in the world. And graciously, he gifts us and utilizes us in that plan. But it's not about our glory. It's not about the glory of Stony Point Church or even the glory of the church. It's about God's glory primarily. So humility but it also grants us a boldness. We are able to boldly stand for truth with the sword of the Spirit, that is the word of God. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear what can man do unto me, the psalmist wrote. So we can boldly fight against injustice in the world because God is a God of justice. We can boldly stand for the widow, for the orphan, and for the immigrant because that is what God does. We can take a class on evangelism. We can talk to our coworkers about the truth of the gospel and proclaim it with love and generosity, knowing that the word of the Lord will not return void. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is, Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to himself and by ruling and defending us and in conquering all his enemies and our enemies. Do we really believe that? Do we really have that courage and that boldness when we're out in the world, we're in our communities. That boldness in turn gives us patience, finally. Israel had to uh, wait a long time before proper sacrifices returned and proper worship returned to the temple. But God had given them a time frame. And they knew that one day, one day, worship would return to the temple. Why? Because God is a God that keeps his promises. You know, randomly on 
Friday morning, I received a text from a former student that I haven't talked to or communicated with or seen in over 17 years. And the text message said, is this Zach Collins? And it had a picture of a Bible that had some writings in it. And then it had a little card that uh, was connected to some scripture memory game. And I had no idea what it was, but I still had the student's name in my phone. So I said, hey, is this? And he said, yeah. I said, I don't know what game this was. What are you talking about? He said, it was a scripture memory program that you guys had for us. And I'm not, these were his words, I'm not really on social media, but I've been trying to find you to thank you and the volunteers for everything that you did when I was such a turd bag. <laughs> but he went on to describe how God had grabbed his heart um, because he had been running from God for the past two decades. And he says now he and his family are pursuing God's kingdom rather than the kingdom of the world. So too it is for us when we know and trust that there is far more going on behind the curtain. We can serve for the kingdom of God, but do so with patience, knowing that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. We're able to continue to love and share the gospel with our neighbor, even though there's been repeated rejection. We're able to continue to pray for that child or that adult child that has seemingly rejected the faith. We're able to proclaim the work of the kingdom, even like Jeremiah, though we may not see any results at all or may not see the results that we expect at least. And we're able to, like Daniel says at the end of this text, rise and go about the king's business with patience. So Daniel 8 has seen its fulfillment, but it reminds us of the king that will not fail. Every other king and kingdom will fail. But King Jesus and his kingdom will never cease because it's an everlasting kingdom. God has sealed that promise to us with the blood of his son Jesus dying on the cross for us and has given us the gift of the spirit, the word of God, and the community of believers that reminds us that there is so much more going on behind the curtain. So by God's grace, may each of us suit up and go into the world with humility boldness and patience proclaiming his kingdom come for his glory let's pray father we thank you that you are a god of history that isn't a god that just knows what will happen but you have declared it to happen and that even though we cannot grasp and understand everything we know that you are at work that amidst what we see as chaos, there is control, there is order, and you are working all things together for your good. We pray that your kingdom would come here on earth. We pray that you would use us to bring that kingdom here. Father, help us to love you and love people as you would. Help us to serve to wash feet, 
and to speak the truth of your grace and mercy and forgiveness because of the cross and your resurrection. In your son's name we pray, amen.